0: This is Mitchell McLam, lead pastor of Sepona Road Church in Fayetteville, North Carolina. We're so excited you found our podcast. Our prayer is that you're blessed by today's message. If you would like more information about Sapona Road Church or would like to give to this ministry, please visit our website at siponarroadchurch.com. We hope you have a great day and enjoy today's message. Exodus, chapter 1, if you please turn there with me. I told you at the beginning of the year that until the Lord led me otherwise, I was going to preach in a different book of the Old Testament in order uh, until every month until the Lord led me different. Um, so we finished up uh, several weeks back, a couple weeks back. I finished the sermon series I was preaching called In the Beginning, and I want us to look at... Uh, Exodus. So this series is The Exodus, A Way Out. So we're going to look at this just a little bit. I'm going to start in Exodus chapter 1. Now I'm going to walk through this. You know how I tend to do. I'm going to walk through some of this scripture as we go. So you keep your Bible open. You kind of hang with me, maintain just a a few minutes, and we're going to roll through. To kind of get us going, though, I want us to look at the book of Exodus as itself. The, the word Exodus, the Greek is departure, exit, or going out. Exodus was written by Moses as he recounts the journey of the people of Israel being led out of Egypt. He himself will learn uh, you should know maybe, maybe you don't, but Moses is the one that actually brought the people out. So if there's anybody who could give a recount of what actually took place better than anybody, it should have been Moses himself, right? right. You'll wait. We're switching gears. You going with me? Can you give me just a little bit more monitor, please, sir? If not, I'm going to start yelling. Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 14. All of these scriptures are coming out of the New Living Translation today. Chapter 8 says, Eventually a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. We can stop right there for a minute, and you need to think about Joseph. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. We did not discuss Joseph, and we, when we walked through our discussion of Genesis, Joseph was a man that was rejected by his family. He was rejected by his brothers. He was uh, put into a pit to die, and then as he was put into the pit to die, these guys come by, and he said, hey, we're going to sell him into slavery. They sold him into slavery. He uh, went into slavery. He, he worked his way up through the ranks. And then this uh, high-ranking guy, his wife accused him of raping her in the palace. And so then he was thrown into prison again. And when he was thrown into prison, he would interpret dreams. He knew God's way. And so the king had some dreams. Joseph came in and interpreted them. And the king uh, had favor on Joseph. He then was put over all of the palace. He was put over everything. A famine came over the land. And when the famine came over the land, there was no food. There was nothing to eat. Joseph was the one in charge of the storehouses. He was in charge of distributing food to everybody that needed something to eat. So it was kind of ironic because (coughs) the place that his family was from also was in the middle of this famine. And so one day, these guys show up needing to purchase food from Egypt, and Joseph was there trying to now provide for the ones that had put him in slavery in, in the beginning. The tables always turn, right? The tables always turn. When, when God has appointed, when God has chosen, when we're faithful, no weapon that's formed against us can prosper. Nothing can stand, right? So Joseph here now has the authority, he has the power, he has the favor with God that he is the one put over providing for his family. And he did that. Whenever he realized who these guys were, he eventually revealed himself to his family. His dad came down. They moved everybody to Egypt. And, and the king gave the Israelites at this point, he, or he gave the uh, Joseph's chosen people, the Israelites, their own place. He gave them their own place in the kingdom. They had a place they could flourish, a place they could grow land. They could grow their crops. They could grow their animals, everything they had. And that's where we pick up in verse 8, where it says, a new king came into power. Joseph has died by this point. You read the first part of Exodus, Joseph has died. His people have multiplied, but Joseph himself is no more. And a, a king came into power who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done, and he said to his people, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. And if we don't, If war breaks out, they'll join our enemies and fight against us, and they'll escape from the country. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers. um, One translation said taskmasters over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build cities of Pithom and Ramses as supply centers for the king. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, the more alarmed the Egyptians became. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. There are some ancient writers that believe that uh, they write and they tell us about how these Israelite women were having four and five babies at a time. They've never seen multiplication. They've never seen people multiply the land and fill the land like the Israelites did in this time. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. I thought about that for you and for I. How often is it that when we face oppression, when something comes against us, we don't drop our head and we don't walk off in defeat and pull back and if anything we, we, we subtract and we actually decrease in number rather than when the oppression comes we increase. It's so much easier when oppression comes against us to withdraw, to find ourselves in the place of isolation we talked about a few minutes ago. When oppression comes against us, when we're pushed to a point where we're feeling like we got a slave driver over us, it's so much easier to get lazy and get to a point where we want to retract retract and hide in a corner somewhere, right? And these people of God set an example for you and for I, even as the church, that when oppression come, rather than withdrawing, rather than retracting and hiding in a corner and being put somewhere to be appeased, they, they grew, they multiplied the more they were oppressed to the point that the Egyptians were afraid of them. Verse 11 says, so the Egyptians made the Israelites, we've, we've already gone there, we moved down to 13, so the Egyptians weren't the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and bricks and do all the work in the fields. They were ruthless in all their commands. So the king puts an order out for the midwives of the Israelite people. The king put an order out. He said, hey, uh, midwives, whenever you go into the home of a Hebrew lady, when she's about to give birth and you realize that uh, you're there in that birthing process, when a baby boy is born, kill him. When a baby girl is born, the girl can live. The Lord kind of dropped something in my heart this morning that if we can kill the boys, we kill the men. Right. Do you realize that in the majority of our churches, this one included the majority of our churches, the majority of the Christian faith, there are more women that are true rooted in their faith, women than there are men. It's just a fact. It is what it is. It's a whole lot easier to find a a woman that is rooted down deep in her faith than it is to find a man. Sure, there are men, but there are a whole lot more few. And the Lord kind of dropped it on my heart that I thought, you know, what's the point? Sure, we're going to kill these Hebrew baby boys, but the king knew that if he could kill the boys, there would be no men. If he could kill the boys when they were born, there would be no men to stand and fight in the army that would stand against them. And so we're living in a culture where we're killing our boys. We're living in a culture that everywhere around us, we're taking away the identity of boyhood, of manhood. We're doing nothing whatsoever to come against the fact that, that our boys are really acting like boys. My boy is 100% boy. The other night, he got a little bit sideways and he got a little bit confused and he started talking about a couple things that really didn't make a lot of sense. And I said, Son, ain't there some three year old good looking girl in your class that you can let be your girlfriend? (laughs) I don't care that he's three. I want him to have a beautiful girlfriend. Amen. It's a whole lot better than the alternative. I'm just being real. I'm going to do my very best, even if he's three years old when I start this process, to instill in him he is a man. He is a man of God. There are duties of him as a young boy. He's going to be a boy that's going to grow into a man. He has a job, not only at home, not only at work. He has a job in the kingdom of God. He has to become a man. It's my job to make sure I don't cripple him as a boy, but I allow him to be a man, right? Right? These midwives are pretty awesome, though, because they didn't do it. And I think they lied to the king because I believe they did show up. They said, though, that when they went to the the Hebrew lady, the Israelite woman's home, to help them birth, they said that they were so vigorous that they had already given birth by the time they ever showed up. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But when you read just a little bit more, the Bible says that that they were faithful to God. And because they were faithful to God, God blessed the midwives and gave the midwives families of their own. It's because of the faithfulness of the midwives that the boys got to live. The king still ticked off, though. So the king says, you know what? We're going to have a decree. And every newborn boy, every young boy that's been born, all of these that you missed, you midwives that want to be faithful, you're going to be thrown into the Nile. This is getting interesting, though, because we find in Exodus chapter 2, jump with me, verse 1, about this time a man and a woman from a tribe of Levi got married. The woman became pregnant, gave birth to a son. She saw that he was a special baby and kept him hidden for three months. When she could no longer hide him, she made a basket of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in the basket and laid it among the reeds. On the bank of the Nile River. This was a, a, just a small tidbit that dropped in my heart this morning. Moses was still put in the river with the rest of the babies. Moses was still put in the river with the rest of the babies. Our kids are going to be put right smack dab in the middle with everybody else's babies. Right? What is it that saved Moses that didn't save the neighbor's little boy? the basket right the basket represents the protection the protection of the prayers of a mama that saw something in her baby She said, there's something special about my baby. I've hid him for three months. I can't hide him anymore. So I'm going to work and I'm going to, to weave this basket. I'm going to waterproof this basket. I'm going to seal it with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to pray over this baby. And he's going to the same place they are. But I believe that my prayer, my protection is going to protect him from drowning. He ain't going to fall through the cracks. He's not going to sink to the bottom like everybody else. Man, I'm preaching. What's wrong with y'all? He said, he ain't going to sink like everybody else is. Instead, that protection, that prayer, that anointing, that The power of the Holy Spirit from that mama is going to keep that baby afloat and he's got a destiny. And God's already orchestrated the right people to the right time. This new king showed up and knew nothing about Joseph whatsoever, but the king had a daughter. The king didn't realize his daughter was going to be the one to change all of eternity. The crooked king the, king, crooked king, the one that wanted these baby boys to be drowned. His own daughter, his own flesh and blood was going to be the one to, to deliver, to raise up this child that would deliver the people out of slavery. See, the king's daughter shows up, the princess shows up one day, and all I can picture is like Elsa showing up to the river to take a bath, and, and Olaf and, never mind, you're not with me. You know, I had to break it somehow, right? The princess shows up to take a bath, and her maidens are there, and they're all around, and she sees something over in the distance because the baby hasn't drowned. The baby's still there. Mama's protection worked. She said, hey, go get me that basket. Give me that baby. And she comes back, and they they show back up, and it's this little Hebrew baby. And off in the distance, Moses' sister is watching to see what happened. And she shows up at just the right time. Hey, princess, did you find something? I know this perfect lady that can nurse that baby for you. Princess is like, absolutely, go get her, and I'll pay her wages. Little girl walks straight and hey, my mama, uh, the princess found baby, and uh, you can nurse the baby and make money while you do it. It's the Bible. It's interesting. That's crazy. God had orchestrated all of this from the beginning. This king shows up who didn't know Joseph, who's corrupt, who wants everybody dead, and his daughter, money out of the palace. That's right. God's going to use money straight from the devil himself to raise up the baby that's going to bring the people out of, the, out of slavery. That's crazy. And she names him Moses, which means to lift out. She had no flipping clue. The power of that baby's name she had no idea that when she named him he was literally going to be the one to lift the people out of slavery and take them into freedom and take them into the promised land she had no idea when she named him what was going to take place she herself out of the palace of evil named him and prophesied over him and brought something into his life that might would not have existed otherwise man i missed y'all last sunday Moses grows up, I don't even really know where I am, but it really doesn't matter. Moses grows up, and he wants to go check on his brothers. He knew he was always different, so he shows up to the Hebrew camp, the Israelites, and he sees this Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And Moses obviously kind of had a hot head, I don't know. He goes and kills the Egyptian and then hides him. One translation said he hit him in the sand. He killed him. Not going to touch my people. I'll show you. Thought he had done something, kind of puffed his chest out. I got your back, brothers. He shows up the next day and there's a Hebrew beating a Hebrew. That's like two church people beating each other. Lord, have mercy. That's ridiculous. We got too many demons to fight to fight each other. And so then he walks up and says, I almost said what I would have said, but I'll say what Moses said. What are you doing? Why are you fighting each other? And they're so bound by their slavery, they're so messed up by their circumstance. So messed up by their circumstance. That they say, who are you? Who do you think you are? You're going to come be our ruler? You're going to come be our judge? Come down from the palace and you're going to show up and you're going to tell us what's right, what's wrong now? No, nah, you realize the king actually knows what you did. He, he realizes that, that you killed one of his men and now you better hit the road, Jack, because he's coming after you. And so Moses flees and he flees to Midian and he shows up there and he meets this girl at, at a well. And, and there he's serving. He sits down at a well in Midian, and these girls are there. They're trying to draw water, trying to draw water to feed their herds, their herds of sheep, right? And the Bible says that these guys show up to attack them. They show up to get them, and Moses runs them off. He defends them, and then he draws the water for these girls. Even raised in the palace, Moses has got a heart to serve people. He's raised in the palace where he was the one that could be served. His mama is the princess. Else is showing up to take a bath, remember? His mama is Cinderella. He could have anything in the world he wanted. Yet when he flees, he sits down and he serves. And because of his service, they show back up to Daddy, Ruel. And she say, he, he says, well, What'd you do with this guy? Where's he at? Oh, we left him at the well. Of course you did, girl. Finally get a keeper and you leave him sitting there. I'm just saying. Some of you girls need to hear that. You'd rather leave that one sitting there to go for Makes no sense to me. Talk to Micah. She did pretty good. <laughs> How do you recover from that? So they go get him, and they bring him back. He serves this man for years. Ruel gives him a a wife. They have a son. And finally, the king dies. We go to chapter 2, verse 23. It says, years passed, and the king of Egypt died, but the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help. Their cry rose up to God, God hearing their groaning and re- remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and he looked down on his people of Israel and knew it was time to act. Time to act. You need to recognize this little tidbit of information that's actually not part of my sermon but I don't want to leave it out. God did not go to the Israelite people that were crying out and say, hold on, I'm orchestrating this. There's been a boy born that the maidservants didn't kill. I did not allow him to die in the river. He is still, uh, he was raised up, he was put under a basket. Hold on, quit complaining just a minute. I'm working on this over here. I put him in a basket, he's in a basket, he lived, he, he didn't get. He didn't drown, then there was a princess, this evil king that you're complaining about, just hold on just a minute, Shh, be quiet a second, that evil king you're complaining about, I actually used his princess, his daughter, to raise up this boy, and he was raised in the palace, and see what happened was, he, he got a little hot headed one day, he killed somebody, so he ran, hang on, quit complaining. He ran off, and I put him in media, and he's been training up, he's been serving for a long time now, he's got a family, and I'm bringing him back, God said he heard their prayer, Never did he go back to them and say, hey, I'm about to bring you out of slavery. Never did he do that. Instead, while they're complaining, while they're, they're frustrated, and I don't belittle that. I'm sure that was rough. But in the midst of all of that for them, God's working, but doesn't have to tell them he's working. We forget God's on our side. We forget he's actually moving in our situation because he doesn't tell us, well, this is how I'm going to work this out for you, son. God don't owe you that. But just because he's not telling us doesn't mean he's not doing it. Look at what he went through just to get Moses to show back up. So Moses makes a journey. And one day he's out in the field. Chapter 3, verse 1. Moses is still back pasturing this flock. He's serving. He's still serving. He's fled everything that he's ever known. He's he's fled the life that he had. He fled the palace. He fled his, his brotherhood. He fled the Israelite people. And he found himself off in the distance at Midian, and he's serving. It said that he was shepherding his father-in-law's flock. I love my father-in-law, and I would shepherd his flock, but that's a statement in itself. He was shepherding his father-in-law's flock when he led the sheep up a mountain. And they show up at Hebron, which is the mountain of God on his Mount Sinai. Nowhere can I figure out or find that this mountain had a name before this day. If you find it, I'll retract the statement. I'll apologize to you and I love you. Nowhere have I found that that mountain was named Hebron before this day. There's a significance. I got three thoughts because I hadn't even started preaching yet. Three quick tidbits from this journey from Moses Find your mountain. Moses was serving, he was shepherding some sheep. Nobody else wanted to do this job. Typically, the shepherds were rejected. They put in the long 24-hour, seven-day-a-week shifts. And he's serving his father-in-law. It wasn't just happen chance, oh, there's a mountain, and if I get to the top of that mountain, God is there. I just got to get there. It wasn't like that. Your Bible says he was shepherding his father-in-law's flock. He led the sheep up to the mountain, up Hebron. And when he got there, it says that a bush was consumed with fire, but not being consumed itself. His mountain was not on a map that said, if I get to this point, if I can just make it right there, God's going to deliver me and everything's going to be okay. It did not exist. Hebron was just another place until God showed up to Moses on that day. The name of, of the mountain literally means God's mountain. All the mountains are God's mountains, Right? But it was the day that he showed up and he met with Moses that it became Hebron. It became Mount Sinai. That was the place that God met with Moses and put in order to let his people go. You with me? But you got to find your mountain. God's waiting for you. He's waiting for an encounter with you. He's waiting for an encounter with us. And we can look at the roadmap all day, every day, trying to figure out how to get there. But it's in the everyday mundane of our service and our worship. He's serving his father in law by shepherding his flock and leads those sheep to the mountain. And it's at the top of that mountain that he meets with God. Find the mountain. Strip it off. When he shows up, he sees this burning bush, and he's amazed, and he wants to get closer. I got to really understand how this is happening. I think he probably had a little bit over-analytical of a mindset. I mean, I don't know what you would be like, but when I go to Disney World, and somehow they're putting a movie screen, this movie's playing on a castle. Instead of looking at the castle, I'm looking around trying to find how they're doing it. I'm just being real. How you do that? And Moses was so intrigued by the burning bush that he wanted to know how it was possible. Where's that flame coming from? There's a torch sitting down in there somehow, and this thing's burning, and it's not being consumed. And so he goes to take a closer look, and God said, you need to stop right there, son. Take your shoes off. Because this place that you're standing on is holy ground. It was just a mountain. But when God showed up, it became holy ground. There was nothing to this. It was a mountain. But he said, you don't get to come to me with what's on your feet. You don't get to bring everywhere that you've been, all these places, everything you've gone through, all that dirt that's on your sandals from the outside. Don't get to come into this holy place. This is a sacred place. Take your shoes off. I did a little bit of research. In a novel written by Jules Verne, The Mysterious Island, this is a, a non-fiction novel, means it actually happened, in case you didn't know. It's a book about an escape of a Civil War prison. And these guys are escaping by a route of a hot air balloon. There is no more fuel for the hot air balloon. They hop on, they light it up, it takes off, they have no way of refueling it. And they're getting closer and closer to the sea's edge. And if they know they get to the sea, then there's no way that they've got enough fuel to make it across the sea to get back to any kind of land. So they start throwing stuff off. They say, okay. As the surface draws closer, the men decide they must cast overboard some of the weight. So shoes, overcoats, weapons are reluctantly discarded. They lose all of their defense, all of their warmth, all of their comfort. They discard them, but that's only temporary. Only temporary, because soon they find themselves dangerously close to the waves again. So they toss their food. They say better to be high and hungry than to be down and and have a full belly. So now they've not only threw away their protection, but now they've threw away their provision. Right? Unfortunately, that too is just a temporary solution. That the craft again threatens to lower the men to the sea. And one man has an idea. They can tie the ropes that hold the passenger car together and sit on the ropes. In case you're not following me, they're on a hot air balloon. The basket that they're sitting in comfortably, that nest, that that place of security, he said, "Hey, let's cut those ropes and let's tie these ropes together and we're just going to sit on the ropes themselves." They cut it away, and the basket dropped in the ocean, and the balloon started to rise. Eager to stand on the land, again, they jump in the water and swim to the island. They live spared because they're able to discern the difference between what was really needed and what was not. The necessities that they thought they couldn't live without were the very weights that almost cost them their lives. Hebrews 12:1 says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially sin that so sort of easily trips us up. And let us run the race of endurance that God's placed before us. God said, you don't get to come into my presence. You don't get to to approach and see how this works with what's on your feet. Strip it off. Because everywhere that Moses had been, USA Today, this is gross, did a study. July the 4th, 2019 was when this article was posted. You can look it up. Said that your shoes tracking dirt, yes, but also fecal germs and diarrhea introducing bacteria. They get dirtier than the toilet seat. That's disgusting. I'm thankful for Brother Bruce that likes to mop the floor with antibacterial junk to make sure that we ain't tracking mess out of our bathrooms into this beautiful holy ground. Amen. They took 10 people with brand new shoes. They wore brand new shoes for two weeks. Outside of the shoes averaged about 421,000 units of bacteria compared with 2,887 units on the inside. Fecal bacteria appeared on 96% of the shoes. That's disgusting. The point is, you got to take some junk off and get some mess out of your life before you can approach the presence of God. All of Moses' past, everything he had done, everywhere he had been, there was some kind of trace on his sandals. And God said, no, nah, you don't get to come here until you strip that off. He found a mountain, but then he had to strip it off. So they go through this long conversation and God reveals himself to him and he says, Moses, I'm going to use you to deliver the people out of Egypt. And Moses instantly does what you and I do. He said, but who am I that could do such a thing? And how do you expect me to show back up these people? The Bible says that the people that wanted to kill you are now dead. He said, but these people, this is the same ones that that rejected me, that turned me over to the king when I was there last time. Remember, God? How am I going to prove to them that you really are God and I'm really sent there to do this? And the Bible says, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 2, he looked at him and he said, what's in your hand? This is important. What's in your hand? And Moses' re- Moses's response is extremely important. What does he say? It's a what? A what? A shepherd's staff, right? That's important to note. He said it's a shepherd's staff. And God said, throw it down. He threw the staff down. He laid it down on the ground and it instantly become a snake and it scared Moses. He jumped back. He ran from the snake. And God said, now reach down there and grab it by the tail. When he reached down there and grabbed it by the tail, it turned right back into his staff. He said, how am I supposed to do this? How am I supposed to be convincing enough that these people are going to believe I am who you say I am, and I'm going to show up and do what you say I can do? How am I supposed to convince them? And he said, what's in your hand? Just my shepherd's staff. It's what I've used to serve. It's the way that I've made my living. It's the way that I actually got my wife and my family. It's my shepherd's staff. He said, throw it down. He said, when they ask me who you are and who sent me, what am I supposed to tell them? He said, you tell them that I am who I am. You tell them that the I am sent you. That doesn't really make any sense to most people. But when you get to the place that you understand, you've gone through this and that and trouble and heartache and trial and financial burden. I am opens up the door wide to what God can be for you. Anything. Anything. I don't need to be put in a box. God said, don't put me in the box to give me a name that I am victory, I'm redemption, I'm, uh-uh, nah. You just go up in there and say the I am sent me. What do you mean the I am? Well, you're in bondage, right? I am freedom sent me to you so you could be free. I am broken. Well, uh, nah, nah. The I am put back together God sent me back so you could be put back together. The I am sent me, but he said I had a shepherd's staff. That gets so interesting because by the time the end of this conversation takes place, you look at Exodus chapter 4, verse 20. You can't make this stuff up. I'll read it to you the New American Standard Bible. It's going to be on the screen in the New Living Translation, but it says, So Moses took his wife, his sons, mounted them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. Moses also took, he carried in his hand what? Earlier it was a shepherd's staff, right? Still the same staff. He didn't get creative and make a new one between verse 2 and verse 20, it's still the same staff. All that took place was he threw it down. He said, what's in your hand? It's a shepherd's staff, God. It's what I use to put the sheep where they go. It's what I beat off their heads with and they get on my nerves. It's a shepherd's staff. It's my tool. It's my toolbox that I have to have for my vocational job, Lord. He said, throw it down. And he throws it down. And what was the shepherd's staff now is the staff of God. Throw it down. You know what happened, maybe. He goes to the people and they get the elders together. Him and his brother Aaron, you need a brother. I say that often, but you need a brother. You need somebody that's got your back. Somebody that ain't going to judge you. Somebody you can pour out a trial, a struggle, a heartache that's going to celebrate with you. You need a brother. So Moses and Aaron show up to the elders, to the people. We'll have to talk about that next Sunday. Because that's not important today. Find a mountain. Strip it off. And throw it down. The mountain's interesting to me because I skipped it intentionally. I struggle with the mountain. I'll just be honest with you. The mountain's a struggle for me. I'm fast-paced, I'm moving. If I've got some motivation and fire under me, you really can't keep up with me. And what I'm doing, the way that I'm working, my vision is ginormous. And I find myself looking for the bush rather than finding the mountain. I find myself chasing the bush I want to be at the feet of God. I want to be right smack dab in the middle of the presence of God, but I want to completely skip the journey up the mountain with the sheep. Don't you want to get rich quick? Sure you do. You might not buy a lottery ticket, but if you could win the lottery, you'd be one happy person. I would be too, because you better pay your tithes on it. But that's trying to get to the bush without finding the mountain. Chapter 3, verse 11, though. Moses is still questioning God. He said, all right, fine. He said, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt and God said I'll be with you this is your sign that I'm the one that sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain do you realize stay with me the sign of God takes place when they show back up at the mountain to worship that means that Moses and Aaron have to show up to the people of of Israel right they have to convince them that they are the sent ones from God God's already equipped them though he said what's in your hand no longer it's a shepherd's staff now it's a staff of God he's equipped them with what they need they stripped off all the junk take off your shoes Throw it down. They had to go and convince the Israelites, these elders of the Hebrew people. But not only then did they have to do that, but then he had to go and stand before the king and say, hey king, it makes no sense. These were the slave, the, the slaves, they were the, the workforce behind Egypt. Every building other than the temple was made of bricks. The Israelites built the kingdom. But I'm going to show up and say, hey, Pharaoh, um, I need you to let these people go. Nah, they ain't going nowhere. What's your problem, guy? Well, the I am sent me. What do you mean the I am? Well, he's actually going to be the I am that sends. A bunch of frogs around here and he's going to be the I am the one that's going to show you what it's like to have a bunch of gnats or flies and he's going to be the I am that's actually going to turn the Nile River into blood I need you to let my people go and we're going to get there in this conversation but I need you to understand that in order for them to know they had done right they had to go do all of that and get back to the mountain. That means they walked in front of the elders of Israel without really knowing that the presence of God was with them. They walked on faith, knowing that they were at the top of that mountain, they were there. Moses and Aaron, they met in that place, they devised the plan, they had it together. But it was not going to be until they showed back up with the people of Israel that God consecrated what it was that he had planned to do. They had to go stand before the king, they had to say, Nah, you don't understand, you're going to let the people go. Nah, guy, you don't understand. They ain't going nowhere. Over and over and over, this conversation takes place. And they finally, they leave Egypt, finally make it out, and they finally make it back to this mountain. And then God says, I'm with you. How much of our journey is walking in faith, knowing God has equipped us, we've left the junk behind, and we're going just in holding the staff of God. And it's not until we make it back to worship that we realize he was with us all along. It took some faith from Moses. He said, how will I know that I'm the one that you're sending He said, you're going to know when you go do it all, and then you make it back here. God, that makes zero sense. I got to go and fight, conquer all of this ordeal, and then I get to know? That I'm the one? That mountain took a a place that day, though. It became the mountain of God. The people show back up to worship. Moses gets that reward of knowing that God was with him and that he was the man, he was the one that God had appointed. But we can't forget how the mountain never came to be in existence. He was simply... Shepherding his father-in-law's flock Stand with me I struggle With the mundane I struggle with the lows of the valley I'm sure like you do I've got a mission in my head, I've got a vision, I've got something I'm attempting to accomplish. When we're not moving 99 miles an hour, I struggle. And it is very, very easy for me to say, well, I'm tired of sitting in traffic and crawling, I'm getting off this exit and I'm going to do something else. Right? That's easy but it was in the mundane that he found the mountain. And it was on top of the mountain that he found the presence of God. And it was in the midst of the presence of God that he shed off everything that kept him from going into the place he needed to go to walking into his destiny. It was in the presence of God that he laid down everything in his past that had ever happened. And it was in the presence of God that he realized the simple tool that was in his hand could be anointed and could no longer be a shepherd's staff, but could be the staff of God. The story of Moses is incredible. But ours really isn't much different, is it? Find the mountain, strip it off, and throw it down. Whatever we throw down, when you pick it back up, it's no longer the same. The stinking staff had just been a stick. It had been a snake. When he picked it back up, it wasn't the same staff that he threw down. Father, God, I've done my very best to be open-minded and deliver this message the way that you saw for it to be delivered. Father, I pray that today something that's been said, something that's been mentioned, Lord, your word has gone forth, God, and maybe it's pierced a heart today. I hope and pray, God, that it's instilled a heart of service, a heart of worship, God, that it's in those slow times that we find the mountain. God, it's in those places of maybe even the mundane that we find the mountaintop, and when we get to the mountaintop, there you are. God, you are the I am. You've chosen us. And you are everything we could ever need. In my weakness, you are strength. In my brokenness, you are completeness. Father, in my bondage, your freedom. In my sickness, your health. Father, everything that we could ever need, you are. God, I pray today that somebody would begin to put their head to the ground. As they serve, they have a servant's heart to find the mountain. God, you're stripping off things in our life today from our past. The nastiness that we're carrying around on our feet. They don't don't have a place in your house. They don't have a place in your presence. God, we're standing on holy ground. You're drawing us near. You're drawing us closer, God. But some of those things need to be broken off those places we've been the things we've seen God maybe even some of the relationships that we've made they need to be broken off God and today we need to realize that there's something in our hand God regardless whether it's an ink pen pushing paperwork whether it's a wrench turning nuts and bolts whether it's a hammer driving nails Father it doesn't matter what it is God, you put something in our hand, and today we want to throw it down. God, that when we pick it back up, it's no longer a shepherd's staff, but it's the staff of God. I want to ask, if you would, as we conclude this time together, as a closing prayer, I want to ask, if you think about what it is that's in your hand, what is it that God can use? as just a symbol of throwing that down and dedicating that to God. Father, we give you those things today. God, I pray that as we are seeking your presence, we're seeking that place, Father, that you're calling us to, the place that God, your presence resides in a way that we've never experienced before. God, you're with us. You're with us always. Your spirit is within us. We already established that today, God. We're talking about the next level. We're talking about a new place, a new season, God. This next, this next feeling of who you are, this next feeling of your presence in our life. Father, we strip off the old today and we lay down what it is that you have put in our hand. God, it's a simple question of what's in your hand. And you're asking that of us today. Father, I pray that you bless your people that are standing around these altars today. God, the things, the gifts, the abilities, the talents, the skills that you've allowed us to obtain. Father, I pray they be blessed. God, I pray that they be something, they be new. They would be different, God. They would no longer be what they've been, but they be something that you can use in a way like you've never used it before. I thank you, Lord. God, you're sending us out. And we're not going alone, but we're going under the power of your spirit. We're going to celebrate, Father, the victory when we make it back to this mountain. We have to walk in faith, God, not by sight. God, but we walk in faith knowing that you're sending us. And when we get back to this mountain, we'll celebrate. I thank you, Father. God, I pray blessings over your people today. I pray for safety. God, I pray for health. I pray for those, God, again, that we prayed for during our prayer time earlier. I pray that you would bless them, God, those that need a physical touch from you. I thank you, God, that you're a healer, that you're sending that. Father, I pray you bless us and keep us and bring us back again in Jesus' name. Amen.